All right, boys and girls, hunting season is right around the corner. We thank you for tuning in to the Big Honker Podcast. We've only got a couple more days in August left, and then it is on to the best time of the year. Hunting season is so close. We've almost made it. We appreciate everybody listening to this podcast. Don't forget that we've got a giveaway going on. Uh, it's going to be two days out here for four people, and we got sponsors that are chipping in a whole bunch of goodies for uh, – our loyal listeners. The way that you enter, are, uh, you can leave a review on iTunes, or you can share our podcast on social media, Facebook, Instagram. Um, you can screenshot that you're listening, post it up, tag us. Uh, you can share clips from our Facebook page. Basically, anything that's got to do with the podcast, if you share it, tag us. Um, we will put your name in the hat. You can enter as many times as you want. So... The more you share, the more enter entries you have, and uh, we'll pick a winner on September 6th. This podcast is brought to you by the one and only Pacific Calls. The boys up there have got it going on. They've got the PCD, which I believe is the best duck call, out on the market right now. The single read is a screamer and uh, never gets old. They're also redesigning the 206, making it a little bit more user-friendly, and it's not going to sacrifice anything. It still has that great sound, and if you're a big boy hunter, uh, the 509 would be my recommendation to you. You can check them out at PacificCustomCalls.com, and you can use the promo code BHP25, saves you 25% off at checkout. This podcast is also brought to you by Shin Gear Waiters. Listen. They've got a promise to you that they will stand behind their waders as long as you stand in them. It is made out of durable nylon. They're not doing this polyester or anything like that. They're making a, a waiter that can take a beating. And if something happens and you do spring a leak, you can send it back to them and they'll get it right back to you in a timely manner. So check them out, shingear.com, and uh, you can... Get your waiters ordered and get them over to your house before the season starts. And like I said, with that kind of guarantee, why wouldn't you buy it? Shingear.com. We're also brought to you by the one and only Dive Bomb Industries, the best silhouette on the market that you can buy, bar none, divebombindustries.com. And they're so much more than just a decoy company. They got bags out. They've got clothes out, jackets. Uh, floaters are in the are in the uh, mix now. They've got teal floaters, mallard floaters, goose floaters. You name it. Dive bomb is becoming a one stop shop for your decoy needs. But they're still the biggest decoy maker on the planet. Um, they've got everything that you're going to need from snows to Canada's to specs. And I always say, get the flocked head. Spend a little bit extra. It adds that contrast out in your spread, and uh, you know. You won't regret it. So check them out at divebombindustries.com and get skinny for 2021. Also, we're brought to you by Boss Shot Shells. Bismuth is back in style. All it takes is one. It hits like a freight train, and it's all made in America. Now, listen, because Joe Biden and COVID and all this other bullshit, shotgun shells are going to get scarce at the end of the year. You're hearing it now. Get your shotgun shells ordered for this hunting season because if you wait until the last minute, there might not be a lot to pick from. So go to BossShotShells.com right now and get what you're going to need. Don't get more than what you're going to need, but get about what you think that you're going to need. Uh, because powder's getting hard to find. The holes are getting hard to find. Do not wait until the last minute to get shotgun shells because you're going to be shit out of luck. So go check them out at BossShotShells.com. 
that's not even close to being far. You're not even. I don't even know the word. You can't reiterate enough how I'm, bad if I'm you want not, shells. Uh, what is it? Panic? No, not create at all. trying to create panic. No, if you're if you're going to waterfowl hunt this year, you better buy your guns. You should you should have bought your ammo yesterday. It's that dire. I've seen so many people put places they can't find stuff, and I've noticed a lot of people are talking about they're having to buy twenty gauges. Right. There's no so. twelve gauges almost anymore. So if you want shells, you better buy them now. Don't wait till the last minute. And if you're going snow goose hunting in <laughs> February and March, you better learn how to shoot a wiffle bow or something. <laughs> Bossshotshells.com. Also, we're brought to you by Lucky Duck. Spinners, if you're going to field hunt, we've always been a big proponent of using spinners out in the field. Uh, they've got a big boy dog crate out there. So if you've got a plus-size dog like my boy Lou, they got a kennel for you. It is five-star crash test rated. Put them back there. Strap them down. You're not going to have to worry about Fido whenever you're going 70 down the highway. Um, spinners are top-notch. They're waterproof. So if you have an uh-oh on a, on a body of water, pick it up, shake it off, get it going again, dry it out, and... You'll be set and ready to go. Check them out at LuckyDuck.com and, um, you know, get whatever you're going to need. Also, they got the best A-frame that's on the market, the 2 by 4 four-grown men, packs up nice and neat, and uh, you don't have to fuck around anymore. Brush it once and be done with it. And put your dog in that crate. Yes, put them in there. LuckyDuck.com. Also, we're brought to you by Dirty Duck Coffee. If your coffee sucks, it ain't the duck. That's how I start my morning every day out here at the Big Honker Lodge. And if you walk through our breakfast line, that is how you're going to start your morning, too. Uh, Dirty Duck, they're made here, right here in Texas. Uh, they're introducing new blends to the lineup almost monthly. They've got a Missouri Boat Ride blend that is very, very delicious. They've got the high velocity, which I like because really gets my engine roaring. Uh, Dirty Duck coffee, and uh, you can taste the difference. So no more shitty coffee early in the morning. Go get Dirty Duck and uh, just be done with it. DirtyDuck.com. We're also brought to you by Gundog Outdoors. Take care of your four-legged friend. They've got a field trauma kit. If you're going out into the field this year, you need to get the field trauma kit. Put it in your bag. Get another one for your pickup. You never know when tragedy is going to strike, and you need to be prepared. So get the field trauma kit from Gundog Outdoors. They've also got, uh, listen, Lou, he's not, the, he's not the most polished dog in the world. He likes to go when the guns go off. So I put the quick-release system on him. That way, he is right where I think he's going to be at all times when I'm ready to send him. Pull the little chain, quick release, lets him go out, do what he needs to do. Uh, they, they're, they've got new bumpers out, so if you're in the middle of training your dog, their bumpers are very nice, have a soft feel, not going to hurt your dog's, not going to hurt your dog's teeth if he comes barreling in and whacks the bumper. So, Gun Dog Outdoors has got it going on, and they've got everything that you're going to need for your four-legged hunting buddy. Also, we're brought to you by the boys over at the Looking Glass Duck Club podcast. Logan Pyatt, Jeff's twin brother, right? Well, identical twin. Identical twin. We don't act the same, but we look the same. Mr. Juicy himself and Rebel, y'all put enough pressure on them. You can uh, donate to their Patreon site, and you can get uh, their their bourbon review, and uh, you can hear all the debauchery going on. Lots of debauchery. Lots of debauchery. Hopefully some of that debauchery comes out here opening weekend of Dove season. I hope so. He says, he says he's going to try to make it happen. But uh, to listen to those guys, you donate to their Patreon site. I think it's five or six bucks a month, and uh, you get their entire uh, podcast history. So I highly recommend you checking that out if you're red-blooded, bourbon-drinking American. Looking Glass Duck Club podcast. Home of the illustrious potate, the uh, honorable Fezware Shriner himself, Logan <laughs> Pyatt. Uh, we're also brought to you by Goose Creek Retrievers. Matt Peel. 
Uh, listen, he's a world-class dog trainer. No problem, too big or too small. You can send your pup up to them, and uh, they'll do the dirty work for you. They'll actually housebreak that little bastard. So my hat's off to him for that. And uh, I tell you what, he's on a circuit right now. He's going to all the field trials, the the hunt and try, hunt tests, and he's just he's raking it up right now. I don't know how he does it. There's no telling how many miles he's put on his pickup, but uh, he's got it going on. He's all of his hard work is is paying off. So if you want to pick his brain, you can follow you can follow them on Instagram, Goose Creek Retrievers. Uh, he's one of the best dog trainers that's out there right now. I mean, it's not even close. You just look at the body of work that he has; it's impressive. That's at Goose Creek Retrievers. Also, we're brought to you by Bangtail Whiskey. Mr. Brandon Bing has made a delicious whiskey that I have enjoyed all summer long. I make my whiskey sours out of it. Check them out if they're at your uh, local liquor store, Bangtail Whiskey. It is a, it's a very good whiskey, and I cannot recommend it enough. So go check them out, bangtailwhiskey.com. We're also brought to you by Eyesight Drone Service. There's no problem too big or too small for eyesight drone service they send a drone up in the air they can survey your land if you've got uh, a teal hole or anything like that you want to know how much water it's holding or you know any of that good stuff contact the guys over at eyesight drone service and they can give you an accurate uh, representation of your land in today's world it's the most important thing you can do I mean, they can do anything you need to do. They can fly over your cattle. They can do a game check for you. They can check your property to see if you've got any kind of oil field damage, uh, storm control, anything. Drones are the way to go. It makes life so much simpler. Contact the guys at Eyesight Drones. Last but not least, we're brought to you by Stanfield Hunting Outfitters. We've got any weekends, or is it all weekdays at this point? What on? Just anything. I've got... Are we talking about dove hunting? Anything. I've got some dove hunting in October open. I've got some waterfowl hunts. I've got waterfowl hunts all three months of open. Not tons of days, but I do have days I can work in. If you got small groups, I can get you in because we've combined them with some other small groups. If you got some big corporate stuff, I still have room available. So the, the COVID, we've lost some customers with COVID. I've had some openings on our calendar come up. It's going to happen. And it's going to happen everywhere, and everybody's going through it. If you got a last-minute deal, you're sitting there and you're saying, hey, we want to try to go hunt next weekend. Call Fat Jeff and see if he can get you in because I bet you I'll try. I'll try my best if we got anything open. 940-658-3172. Or you can email goose at westtex.net. Thank you for listening. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, this episode of our podcast, we are joined by Mr. John Devney from Delta Waterfowl. He's the senior vice president over there at Delta. And uh, we talk about the upcoming waterfowl season, what the drought in the Dakotas could potentially do, and uh, we kind of go go through every flyway, talk about different things that are going on in each of them. And uh, it was a really good podcast. We hope that you enjoy it. Here he is, John Devney. And go donate to Delta. Here we go. Three, two, one. Boom, and welcome to the Big Honker Podcast brought to you by Lucky Duck. I am well-known at the Allsup's in Knox City. I'm just old Jeff Stanfield with the world-famous Andy Shaver. You don't go to Allsup's. 
You are correct. I don't. I, I'm not a. I'm not a shopper, anyways. So yes, I do not go to Allsup's, but I am known at Allsup's. I'm sure. Small town. With us today, from the big, big city of Bismarck, North Dakota, with Delta Waterfowl, a graduate of St. John's University, the number one <laughs> winning football program in the country, Mr. John Devney. John, how are you doing? I'm doing good, guys. How are you? I bet that's the only plug St. John's University football program is going to get today on any podcast in the world. I doubt that. Uh-oh. Um, it's probably going to be the only one coming out of Texas. <laughs> what is, so it's the all-time winningest coach is from? All-time winningest coach in college football history. Right. Yes. Is yeah. he still there? No, he is uh, He is gone to where old men go. He passed away here a few years ago, but I had the pleasure of uh, – I. You know, it's one of those things you did when you were at St. John's was take theory of football. My academic advisor wasn't delighted that I was taking a theory of football class my senior year of college before I went to law school. And uh, what a character, um, you know, the Division Three Heisman equivalents named after him. Uh, everybody that came out for the football team at St. John's dressed for home games. Uh, so you'd have 200 dudes down there. Uh, and, you know, sometimes that worked our advantage because be a few games where we were up 50 to 70, 70 points on somebody at halftime. And some of those guys would get actually get in the football game. So <laughs> it was, it was a great, it was a great part of my college experience. And I, I didn't play football, but have a lot of, a lot of passion for my alma mater and think a lot of the football program there. So. Well, the reason why I ask is when you're watching, if you watch this on YouTube, you see behind him, you see a red and white helmet with a number scratched off of it. And I did my glasses. I, if I'm looking through the bifocals part, I can't see shit. So I, but I was looking through him and I thought it was a Nebraska and it was full of red and white. And I asked it and he's like, God, no, it's not Nebraska. And <laughs> you, you offended know. the man. Yeah, I offended him by that because everybody knows. I would be offended, too, if I was at St. John's University and somebody thought I was the Nebraska football program. And that is hilarious on its own right there. Uh, what What's the gentleman's name? Was the coach there? John Gallardi. John Gallardi at St. John's yeah. University. That, now, where's St. John's located? Is it in St. John's, Minnesota? It's just outside of St. Cloud, Minnesota. Saint it's Cloud. actually set, it's actually set um, back out in the woods. It's the... Uh, it, Old school start back in the 1800s. On the, it's on the grounds of the largest Benedictine monastery in North America. So it's a Catholic school set out, all men's school set out in the woods. So do they do they not have girls go there now? Is it still an all men's school? Well, when I was there in the late 80s and early 90s, and it had been that way for a long time, all the classes were joint. There was an all women's school just down the road. And so all the classes were joined, but the campuses were independent. That's kind of like Texas A&M was right. back in the 70s still. They used to still have boy-on-boy -boy dances, I used to tell all my Aggie friends. <laughs> <laughs> but there, but it seems like any of these schools that are like all-boy, there's an all-girls school that's just like two miles down the road. So it's, right, you, that's right. It kind of defeats the purpose. And all, the all-fun, all-party zone was halfway in between. Right. <laughs> so you're an attorney also. No, no, I was going to go to law school and decided to the better of that. Uh, you know, right as I got accepted to law schools, I decided not to end up going to law school. 
Well, that's a good thing. That means they didn't suck half your brain out with all the common sense. <laughs> so you, you're the second in charge at Delta Waterfowl. Is that correct? No, no, I don't. I don't know where I am anymore. But I've been been here. I'm senior vice president of U.S. Policy. I've been here. Uh, be 23 years in November, so I've been around a long time. That is a long time. Now, hold on. Before we get into this, what is theory of football? What does that class entail? Oh, it was. Uh, it didn't really. We. I mean, we looked at some old game films from the old national championship teams, uh, but we spent a lot of time doing things like how to do an appropriate handshake. Really. Yeah, we spend two classes learning how to do an appropriate handshake. I'm curious about this. What yeah. is an appropriate? Like the Shriners have their old thumb over the other, their secret handshake. What's ours? So what's the proper you know, way? This was. It couldn't be too soft and it couldn't be too hard. Oh, okay. Oh. So you couldn't you couldn't give the guy sort of this weak ass handshake, right. but you couldn't also. You didn't want to roll his knuckles together either, right? <laughs> so you kind of had to find that nice mix. See, but. <clears throat> We have a hunting lodge out here, and there's some burly individuals that come out here. And like, if if you don't like really grab a hold, you're gonna get They'll your knuckles. Your, yeah, your knuckles are gonna yeah, get rolled you'll over. Get rolled up. No, this was this was uh, this wasn't taking taking into consideration grizzly bears at duck camps. <laughs> this was more about what you're gonna do in your right. next job interview, right? Out, out in a professional setting. There is nothing yeah. worse than a grown man with a limp wash rag handshake i mean you know and i catch some sometimes like i i grew up in wichita falls and we played softball and we used to play against a team called the utter guys and it was all dairy guys from this little town called winthorst texas them some bitches would like hoss cart ride they would break your hands almost but you expected it from them you know you knew it but when i go shake hands with a guy and he's got some little limp liberal democratic handshake it just wears me out i mean just does Ugh. And you can tell a lot about a guy by the handshake that they give you. Of course. That was the theory. That was the important outcome of the theory of football is you got to make a good impression with that first handshake. Yeah, I mean, it really is. And uh, but I, I, I've talked about it a lot. And um, kids today, I don't know. I, th- I think there needs to be more handshaking classes going on in high school. That way that they're ready for whenever they get out there. They're not, you know, got the palm down. I think it's I, a good idea. I... When Trump was running for office the first time, like 2016, and he would like do that, and he'd like flip, he'd pull their hand in. What a power move! He was letting those guys know who the boss was. Do uh, I think that they should teach hands? You know what's crazy is we hunt more and more women all the time. It's, women are getting more involved in the outdoors and hunting, especially. The women shake hands firm. Every every woman I shake hands with, when they shake, they if a lady sticks her hand out, shake your hands. By God, she's gonna grab the hell out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Bottom line to it. She's going to shake your hand like she's supposed like they teach at St. John University right there. <laughs> An important part of my degree. Yeah. That's right. I, yeah. I, my academic advisor would be mortified. This is what we're talking about in my academic experience at St. John. <laughs> it is what it is. I'll bet you of all the people that he had at St. John University, I'll bet you you're happier and enjoy what you do more than 99% of the other people do. Pretty, I bet you you're pretty damn close. And that right there is winning at life. If you can find a way to make a living doing something that you enjoy doing, you don't take very many vacations because it's just a couple of days away from work is what it is. It's not a vacation because you love what you do. Yep. And, Absolutely. And you're ta- And there's three of us on this deal right now, and all three of us are in that 99% group when it comes to that. 
tell us about how Delta Waterfowl started. Yeah, I mean, it goes way, way back. You know, the organization sort of founded out of the sort of general conservation movement around the turn of the century back in 1911. But when we really think about Delta in its true formation, it started with James Ford Bell. And I don't know if you guys, being in a different part of the world, I grew up in the upper middle West. And so we knew who James Ford Bell was. He's a gentleman that started General Mills, okay. which was, of course, a big concern in that part of in, in that time in our history. And he loved shooting canvasbacks. That was his deal. And he hunted at a place in southwestern Minnesota called Heron Lake, which was a famous, famous old shallow lake in southwestern Minnesota that was a great staging area for canvasbacks. And actually, you know, before you know, we sort of got all civilized. That was a place that shot canvasbacks for the market in Chicago. They're, you know, running birds back and forth from Chicago. Now, what James Ford Bell saw happen is, for a lot of reasons, Heron Lake degraded and the canvasbacks didn't come. And so what he did was he moved to another place um, called North 10 Mile Lake, which is in sort of west central Minnesota, which was again one of a, and continues to be sort of a storied old diving duck place. But he saw much the same thing happen there and he thought, you know, the heck with it. You know, I started General Mills. I'm a guy with some resources. And he said, I'm going to go to the source. And he went up and bought property on the Delta Marsh, which is just to give your listeners some orientation. West of Winnipeg, Manitoba, on the south side of Lake Manitoba, and west of Winnipeg on the south side of Lake Man Manitoba. And he went up there and bought a bunch of land and started shooting ducks up there. What he recognized is that the locals weren't delighted mm -mm. to have a rich American come up and shoot their ducks, right? And so and he was a really, really intellectual, really thoughtful guy. And he said, okay, you know, I got to, I got to be a good neighbor here. So what we're going to do is we're going to put two ducks back for every duck we shot. And that'll be our promise that we make to the locals. And so he started a hatchery and he figured out pretty quickly that he could not raise canvasbacks in captivity, which was his favorite duck. And he went to Aldo Leopold, who you guys will know is sort of the father of North American game management and said, you know, I need you to come up to this place and look what I'm doing and help me figure out how to uh, raise canvasbacks in captivity. And Leopold went up there, had no interest in hatcheries at all. But what he convinced James Ford Bell to do was start a research station at Delta in the late 1930s. And that next year, 1938, uh, Leopold's one of his most prized graduate students Hans Albert Hochbaum went to Delta and started a research program at the Delta Waterfall Research Station. So that's that's the old origin story of how Delta came to be. Now, um, at this research station, were they just looking at canvasbacks at, at that time, or were they kind of have they evolved to kind of looking at all ducks? They when they got there, Leopold convinced Bell that this was here's this great prairie marsh, and you can learn about something we don't know much about, which is wild ducks. So the early researchers 
we're doing work on all duck species, bunch of duck habitat work, trying to understand how the system works. So yeah, I mean, the seminal papers, uh, the first big paper that Hochbaum wrote was Canvasbacks on a Prairie Marsh. But if you read Canvasbacks on a Prairie Marsh, there's all sorts of breeding duck behavior of, of all the dabbling ducks too and, and the research he did. And then shortly after Canvasbacks on a Prairie Marsh came out, Lyle Souls published Prairie Ducks, which of course had an expansive, sort of a expansive look at breeding duck ecology in Southern Manitoba. And this was in the mid twenties? Mid thirties. Mid mid thirties. So yeah. that- so bomb got to Delta in 1938. When did, uh, was the first duck stamp in 1931 or am I off by eight years or something? It would have been in the thirties. And that, that my point was to that was that's when we first started seeing the first movement towards really conservation. When we started doing the first duck stamps, right? Wasn't that, didn't that coincide with that kind yeah, of think about what was happening at that time, guys, right? We had the dust bowl. Yes. had This huge drought duck populations were crashing. Um, well, the road was crashing, but duck populations were crashing right alongside of them. Huge so depression. He, the depression, the dust bowl, the drought, all that stuff came together at sort of one moment. And so, you know, DU got founded in 1937. Delta founded in 1911, sort of finds its footings in the late 30s. The federal duck stamp passing, you know, uh, we banned market hunting. All the rest of those things start happening in the in the late 30s as a result of that terrible drought. How close? The first duck stamp was 1934, by the way. <clears throat> how how close were the numbers to to I mean, almost getting to the point of where ducks, like we know them today, wouldn't have been had we kept going on the trajectory that trajectory that we were going on in the 30s. Was there going to be a tipping point where the duck numbers were just too far gone to to save? Well, we can talk about that. I know we're going to talk about a bunch about the prairies and the current state. You know, the, you know when you think about in that context, you're in this terrible drought. That means you're not getting many baby ducks. Your ducks are dying. And they were dying at rates that, frankly, they don't die anymore because we had market hunting and right. all the rest of that stuff. So harvest was certainly more of a factor. Um but, you know, I think it was really the drought breaking, probably the one, two big deal that sort of turned ducks around pretty quickly was finally the drought broke and we got rid of that sort of unregulated market hunting. Right. Now, <clears throat> North Dakota is in a terrible drought right now. Is it now it's not down into Texas and Oklahoma like it was during the Dust Bowl days, but is is are things comparable to North Dakota then and and now? You know, the <clears throat> droughts are a funny thing. And, and the really interesting thing about this drought, guys, is we were in a drought last year, but none of us knew we were in a drought. Mm-hmm. Now, that sounds a little silly, but we were so wet in the fall of 2019 and coming through the winter of 2019 into 2020 that we had water on the landscape in, 2019, in 2020 that, I mean, it was incredible the amount of water we had out here. Now, but we got dry quickly once we got into summertime. It got pretty bloody dry. And so we were in a drought. It just, from a duck guy's perspective, it didn't look like a drought. Right. If you're a guy that was 
you know, worried about crop. And even the crop guys, I don't think, got beat up too bad. But some of the pastures started t- feeling it last year. But so I guess where we sit right now is we're in year two of a drought. But we're, I would say we're really in year one of a drought if you're talking about it from a duck perspective. So when you think about the last bad droughts that had big consequences on duck populations, you look at the 30s, you look at some times in the late 50s, 60s, you look at the what is the most contemporary one that I lived through was sort of the late 80s, early 90s. We've got generations of duck hunters that didn't even know that happened, right? Um, those were prolonged droughts. So drought happens. It's always happened in this part of the world. And the question is, how long is it going to last? Um, we know it's not going to be great in the short term, but we can sort of battle back from it if we get water again. Um, it's Are we going to be in what we were in the late 80s and early 90s? We're, we're in this situation for five or six years. And that's where things really start to get tough. So in the short term, it, there there will be consequences. But if, if it doesn't, you know, if it breaks this year, long term, it, it's not a, it's not a big deal. We had a biologist right. on not too last week, I guess, and you know he was talking. You know, one good thing about a drought is a lot of that natural vegetation kind of grows back. And if you break the drought, and those ponds fill back up, there's great vegetation for duck, duck habitat yep. just goes through the roof. So you yep. need this is a natural cycle that you need. Right. And, you know, I think, you know, for folks in your part of the world and further south where most everybody's hunting under managed habitat, mm-hmm. I think it's hard to imagine what we're talking about up here. And, and the engine that drives duck production on the prairies are these little itty bitty, teeny tiny temporary and seasonal wetlands, right? And some of those are 0.1 acres in size. Right. And in those wetlands, you know, in all but the wettest years go through, even in the same year, go through this wet cycle. This one, you know, we're in a situation now where a lot of stuff is dry. I mean, there were no te- virtually no temporaries or seasonals in North Dakota this year. We started to see our big, you know, even our smaller semi-permanent start to dry up. Now, the other thing to remember is while we were pretty, we were damn wet in 2020 so was south dakota prairie canada was pretty bloody dry Mm -hmm. so we're in about the third year of drought in places like manitoba and saskatchewan especially saskatchewan right and now where do are more ducks are they bred more in north dakota or in the in the prairie potholes of uh canada well there's way more real estate north of the 49th parallel right so you start looking at Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. There's just there are more raw ponds up there. Now, what we've seen happen in the last sort of two decades, really, in as a result of good farm policy in the U.S., things like the Conservation Reserve Program, things like the Fish and Wildlife Service Easement Program, is we've had more net recruits modeled to come out of the U.S. prairies. And we even had, in some years, a species like pintail, where a higher percentage of the breeding population was in the U.S. prairies and the Canadian prairies. That would have been completely unheard of in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So it's that contrast between some really good things happening in the U.S. has made it pretty attractive for breeding ducks. And so, but the lion's share of the real estate is still north of the 49th parallel. 
Right. You mentioned the CRP program. And, and I guess under the Biden administration, they've, they're wanting more acres in CRP. What does that do to the duck population? Because, you know, automatically pops into my mind is that's less food because, you know, it's just natural vegetation. So it's, it's less food for a duck to eat, potentially. So what, how does the CR program, uh, C, CRP program, uh, how does that help duck hunters? So, yeah, so in our part of the world, you know, up here in the prairies, North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, Iowa, Montana, because CRP cuts off at the U.S. border, right? right? That's a U.S. program, not a Canadian program. Basically, what it does is pays farmer to, farmers to take marginal crop land, put it, plant it back to, back to grass. So that's putting nesting cover on the landscape for ducks. And the Fish and Wildlife Service estimated that at the peak of CRP, in the U.S. prairies, it was producing about 2.2 million extra ducks mm -hmm. each year than would have been produced. Wow. And and when you think about that, that's a hell of a lot of ducks, yeah. right? And and so and what I would tell you is that food resources in our part of the world are not limited. You know, in North Dakota, um, at the peak. Uh, 2007, we had 3.5 million acres of CRP. Um, I mean, believe me, there weren't any mallards or pintails starving. <laughs> there were plenty of barley and wheat and bean and corn, you know, harvested fields to forage in. Plus, a lot of those species, when they're here, uh, up until about this time of year, all the groceries come out of the wetlands themselves. They're not eating grain right. until you know, about this time of year where they start switching over and eat, get in those recently harvested barley and wheat fields. Yeah. Cause see down where we are, that's, that's where we hunt most of the time. It's a, it's an agriculture field. It's peanuts, it's wheat, uh, yeah. corn, milo. So yeah. when, when, when I see a field go into CRP down here, it's like, Oh no, like there, there's a food resource that the birds, cause they're not going to go into an overgrown grass field <clears throat> down here. Cause they, you know, they're right. out here in the winter time. So Right. Um, I guess it all depends on on where you are in the country, yep. but I, I see it here, and I'm like, oh goodness, that is not what I wanted to see. And, and most yeah. of the farmers out here, um, you know, they still there's there's not a ton of CRP down here. So right. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that that makes so two million ducks are as a result of two point two million ducks back when we were sort of at peak levels with CRP, the Fish and Wildlife Service did a big intensive study across the U.S. prairies and estimated about 2.2 million incremental baby ducks as a result. Jeez. And, and that, I mean, that just, that can compound into the future. And, and that's exactly what it's done. It's been compounding on top of compounding on top of compounding. And that's why you've had these high breeding, that and good wetland, frankly, better wetland situation here in the U.S. and in Canada. That's the reason why we've had years where we've had incredibly high breeding duck numbers in places like eastern North Dakota and South Dakota and why we've had really good duck production for all these years. Do you think the duck numbers are pretty accurate with what the feds tell us on everything? Because my opinion is I think the duck numbers are way off where there's a hidden place nobody knows about that's holding tons of birds because we haven't seen ducks the last two years like we have. And we have we we've had water here, so that's it's water hasn't been an issue for us, and there's been a lack of winter. But everybody I talked to this year, all through the Central Flyway, and that's it, we talk to people from all over the United States, but the duck numbers just nobody's seen no ducks the last two years like they had been. 
<clears throat> well, I'm going to tell you something pretty profound. Okay. Is, first of all, I believe the numbers to, to what the numbers are useful for. Right. It's an estimate. Right. We're right. trying to census duck populations across this huge geography. So do they count every duck? Hell no, they don't no. count every duck. But here's an important thing is I'm going to say something pretty profound and we can talk about it. Duck hunters don't hunt the breeding population. They hunt the fall flight. And what I mean by that is what really drives hunting success is the number of baby ducks we make in the spring. In the last couple of years, what did we just talk about? Prairie Canada has been pretty bloody dry. Right. <clears throat> and so, you know, and we've offset that. I think, you know, I got, I haven't spent a lot of time looking at it. I got the harvest estimates from Fish and Wildlife Service uh, here late last week and started looking at the age ratios to tell us how many baby ducks we actually killed last year versus adults, but it's nowhere near what it was three, four, five, six years ago. And that's just a function of we haven't been crazy wet like we were three, four, five, six years ago. And we haven't been wall to wall wet. So when hunters say they're having tough seasons and don't believe the surveys, the challenge is I think we as a waterfall management community haven't told that story well enough is that we don't hunt the breeding population. We hunt what the breeding population makes. Right. And, and you guys are goose hunters. You know how this works, right? You talk to really hardcore snow goose hunters, and they drive around and say, well, I'm, I'm out scouting today, and I found this field, and, man, there's a lot of geese in it, but they're all adults, and I found this field, and there are a bunch of juveniles, and so that's the one we're going to hunt, Right. Because juveniles are easier to kill. Well, I got news for you. Juvenile ducks are easier to kill, too. Sure. The difference is we can't, when we're scouting ducks, you know, it's not clear what a juvenile mallard is versus an adult mallard when we see them on the pond. Mm -hmm. And so what's happened is the last few years, we've had less young ducks. As a consequence, we've had more difficult duck hunting. Right. Um and one thing that we ran into, I guess it was two years ago, Texas, where we are, got extremely wet. And what that did in turn, everybody thought it was just going to be this mag magical duck season. The ducks spread out more. So right. they weren't concentrated to where people were seeing just a ton of ducks. Instead, they would see two dozen here, three dozen there, six over yep. here. Instead of, you know, how we normally are on a normal winter is there's a, a few big bodies of water, and it, that's where your ducks are. But instead, right. they just spread out over the whole state, and everybody's like, well, there's no ducks here. It's like, well, there are. They're just they're so spread out that it looks Mile like there's wide and an inch deep. Right, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. So um, when they when – they, so what you're saying is we, we hunt the, the, the fall flight. We hunt the, the spring's young. Um, the, the adults plus the springs young, right? right? And I'll give you a great example. If you go back 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, we were crazy wet in those years. We had years where we had two pintail, two young pintails for every pintail we had, for every adult. Right. Okay. So do the math. Just do the raw math. So if you're breeding population, we'll use a nice round numbers, three. Mm-hmm. And then you multiply that times two. Right, six. Right. If you're three and your age ratio is one to one, 
it's a lot less ducks in total. And you could do that same. We did it in our magazine a couple of years ago and we looked at, you know, mallards, gadwall, pintail, blue winged teal, and it'll show you the peaks and valleys of the harvest all related to that proportion of young in the fall flight. So what is your, your prediction for this year? Another, another tough one as far as duck numbers go? Tougher. Tougher. Than seen. Yeah. And, and the reason for that is, is, you know, last couple of years we've suffered with Canada being pretty dry, probably having pretty, mediocre production. Last year, we had the benefit of the Eastern Dakotas being pretty darn wet. Um, I mean, I just before we got on here, guys, I went and looked at the brood count for the North Dakota Game and Fish has done a survey for a long, 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 long time. Their brood estimate this year was half of what it was last year. Ooh. Those are baby ducks that aren't here. That aren't going to be in the fall flight. What are those mostly mallards? Uh, I mean, that's going to be mallards, blue wings, gadwall, shovelers, pintails. You know, the five primary nesting species here in North Dakota. And that's going to affect the the Mississippi Flyway because a lot of the mallards go there, come out of eastern North Dakota, don't they? Yeah, in yeah, I mean, eastern North Dakota is a pretty darn important place for lots of folks. But certainly the Mississippi and Central Flyway for sure. Because I don't most I don't think we've ever killed a banded bird from North Dakota here. I think most of our birds are going to come from Western North Dakota to Alaska. Well, we we have a lot of specs here, so we see a lot of birds come out of Alaska for us. But yeah, you guys are a little further west, right? So you may yes. you may be more Alberta right. than Eastern Dakotas, right? Yeah, we don't get a lot of bird a lot. I think a lot of our ducks especially come from either Western Dakotas to Quill Lake West. Where, yep. where well, and, <clears throat> Yeah, you guys are kind of on that sort of west side of that tipping point, right? Yes. If you were in, you know, if you were in Kansas or you were at Cheyenne Bottoms, you know, Cheyenne Bottoms or southeast Kansas or the Platte, you know, then you'd start to see the eastern Dakotas be a little, you know, considerably more important. You guys are just getting a little too far west of us. Yeah. So what does a duck do during these conditions? Do they go somewhere else? Would they try to find somewhere that is wet? And, I mean, you know, it's a pretty far flight to do that. But, I mean, they've been around forever, and they've seen droughts like this before. Depends on who you are. Yeah. If you're you're a canvasback, you go back to where you where you historically nested, and if it's dry, you just sit it out. Okay, if you're a mallard, you go back to where you were. You may nest once, mm-hmm. and if that nest is lost, which most of them are, right, uh, you're done for the year. If you're a pintail, pintails. Pintails are a crazy duck. They fly around all over God's creation looking for water. If you're a pintail from Texas, you come up to North Dakota, you fly around, it's dry here. You go to Saskatchewan, it's dry there. You go to Alberta, it's dry there. You go to Alaska. Wow. But but here's what we know about pintails is the further north that population settles, the lower reproductive success that they're going to have. I'll be damned. Right? And so with a lot of these prairie ducks, they do best when they're here. Yes, ducks do overfly the prairies. They do go up to the boreal. But the boreal just isn't as productive for prairie ducks 
as the prairies are. And that's why they're prairie ducks. Right. Now, what, what is that about? Is it lack of resources? Is it more predators? What, why are they less successful? It's, it's probably lack. I, that's a great question. I don't know if I could definitively answer that for you, but the wetland resources in the prairies are pretty rich. Mm-hmm. All of invertebrates, lots of groceries, lots of things that sort of drive the breeding effort. In those boreal wetlands, I mean, you guys have seen trips where guys are in 18-foot lunds catching big pike or lake trout on those right. lakes in the boreal forest. They're rock, man. Right. <laughs> you know, not a lot grows on rock. Yeah. And, and so they're just, by their nature, generally less productive. And, and so that's sort of what the dynamic is. And so, yes, the birds will go up there. Um, they kind of use it as refugia. They can go up there and camp out for the summer. They'll survive to, you know, they sort of carry on to wait for better times, right? Yeah. So I did. You mentioned earlier the drought in the '80s and '90s. I had no idea about that. How long did that drought uh, last? Six, seven years. Oh wow! Drove us down to the lowest population estimates ever recorded for mallards resulted in closed canvasback seasons, closed redhead seasons. When I was a kid, you couldn't shoot canvasbacks and redheads. Mm-hmm. Um, three bird bag limits in the Mississippi flyway, uh, 30 day dock seasons could not shoot before full sunrise <laughs> and no teal seasons. What year was this? 80s. Uh, that would have been anywhere from the late eighties into 1993. That's when I started goose hunting is because the duck limits in Texas had went down. I grew yep. up, I'm 53, so we're probably close in age, aren't we? Yep. Yep, I'm 50. Okay. I re- when I was a kid growing up in Texas, we were on the point system. You could kill yep. You could kill 10 pintails then. Yep. Ten, in the early 80s. 10 till, yep. 10 pintails, blah, blah, blah. And then they went to a three, I think it was a three bird limit. I, I, I think that's exactly right. And that's when I started goose hunting. Instead of duck hunting is because the limits changed, and I could shoot the same amount of geese as I could ducks. We started goose hunting, yep. and there wasn't a lot of ducks for a couple of years. It went from being able to shoot three of us could go out and shoot thirty ducks in a day to being able to shoot nine and, and struggling to shoot nine sometimes. Right, and um, those I, were dark days. Yeah, I don't remember the canvas if we were closed on canvas backs in Texas or not, but I think that is correct. I know we weren't closed on redheads down here though. Yeah, you might have still had redheads. That might have been a Minnesota deal just because canvasbacks and redheads had a lot of overlap where I grew up. And guys could not be terribly discerning <laughs> between redheads and canvasbacks. <laughs> right. So that also, the goose population also exploded after that down here in our areas. Yep. We saw a huge increase in goose numbers, and I don't think the geese have slowed. Speckle bellies damn sure haven't slowed down since then. But uh, you said something earlier. You're talking about the drought. The drought's not just in the center, in, in the that Dakotas and Saskatchewan and Alberta. I saw a picture today from California of they're just dry, 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 dry. So it's terrible. The, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you take look at some important duck places west of here, Great Salt Lake, uh, which people would have a hard time imagining, but it's an incredible duck place terrible shape uh the central valley california california duck hunters most of their mallard harvest comes from california right it doesn't come from the north 
and they're going to have dismal production. Um, I mean, they're, you know, Klamath, Lower Klamath National Wildlife Refuge is continues to be in crisis mode. Part of that's the drought, part of that's policy. There's sort of a God drought and a man-made drought at Klamath. And, and so, yeah, there's places out there that are, I mean, you know, we're whining about the drought here. There's places that are having bigger problems than we are here and certainly bigger problems than how many ducks we're going to be able to kill. I mean, the fires that we've had and everything else have been pretty incredible summer. What, what places are there that's Texas is wet. We are wet. The Panhandle, Texas is wet. We're wet here. South Texas is real wet. Louisiana is wet. But we don't make ducks. No, we don't make ducks. The, the places where they're going to winter are got water in them, but the places that make them don't have any water. Yeah, and that's I think that's what we're shaping up for. Because uh, we've got teal here, record numbers of teal for this time of year. We don't ever have teal this early in the numbers. I mean, if you saw a flock of four or five, it'd be okay. But we're, we, we have big numbers of teal here now, and that's never happened ever. And a guy messaged me earlier and said that they were told it's because the wildfires are driving them out of places. No, it's the drought on the prairies, guys. And, and I love shooting those early blue-wing teal. We don't have a teal season here in North Dakota, but – I love shooting those blue wings for the first couple of weeks. I won't think about shooting a mallard for the first couple of weeks of the season. I want to shoot chubby blue wing teal. But really? When we when we're when we're this dry, my I, I don't have any science to suggest it, but I've seen it with my experience living here for the past twenty years. When we have a dry year, we lose our blue wings. I think you guys are the beneficiary. You got our birds, right? And, you always get our adult males in August and early September, but I think you got more than that this year. Right, and that, and that's all just because the resources aren't there, so they ship out. You like teal, like what kind of habitat? Yeah, shallow habitat, right? Right. right. Guess what? We ain't got <laughs> shallow shallow habitat. habitat. So you're we gonna got miss lakes out in mud. That's all. We, lakes and dirt is what we got. So you're gonna miss out on some of your favorite hunting this year. I we may well. I mean, I'm. You know, we're getting a couple rains here now and then, and you know we may be able to find some blue wings, but it, it it's not going to be like it's been the last few years where we've been able to really just dial in on blue wings and, and get after them for the first part of our season. So is is there any part of the country that is doing okay and making a lot of ducks and should shape up to be an okay hunting season? I think you, the further east you go, yeah, the story gets better. Right. You get over to Wisconsin, Michigan, places, that, uh, you know, those parts of the world that have pretty darn good duck, not relative to the prairies, but right. in their own right, have pretty good breeding populations of ducks. They're going to have decent production because they've had more consistent water. So I think you get in the U.S., you get sort of east of Minnesota because Minnesota is dry like we are incredibly dry. And then you get into places like southern Ontario and Quebec those places have fared better. So I think the further east you go, the better off you're going to be from from a duck production perspective this year. So in your opinion, when the fall flight starts to happen, are they just going to overshoot the Dakotas and go to a place like, uh, where does the drought kind of end? I know Nebraska is also dry. Western Nebraska is. So will they go to a place like Kansas or Oklahoma? It depends on, again, it kind of depends on the critter you are, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're a blue wing, you might look around and say, well, there ain't much here for me. And maybe that's what you guys are seeing right now is right. maybe maybe blue wings that would stop here 
in in August from Saskatchewan or Manitoba are just blowing right on through. Now, when you're talking about a mallard, you're talking about a duck that's got a great strategy. He can make a living a lot of different ways, right? And so they can get on big water and grain feed and all the rest of that stuff. I don't know if it'll have a material impact on, you know, our late mallard hunting. Uh, that remains to be seen. But, you know, I'm a little worried. You know, we talked about blue wings. The other, my favorite, my favorite duck to shoot those late season grain wings. And I don't, I, I don't know if we're going to have the places for them. Maybe they just bugger off and go all the way to Cheyenne Bottoms or someplace in Missouri and, and blow right through this country. We're just going to have to wait and see. What an, I mean, <laughs> there's so much going on in this world today. Like yep. it, it feels like there is a, like a fire and a catastrophe around every corner on on what we love it's sitting in a house in washington dc right now no but i mean it's just it's it's absolutely everything is just the it's, end of the world the whole world is crumbling <laughs> I mean, around us it, it seems like and it starts with duck hunting it's it's, it's, <laughs> it's amazing like there's there's not one part of my of like my life that i can be like we're good here. There's not it's a like stable thing going. Everything is just so fluid. But I guess it's always been that way well, with, with duck numbers. I mean, this has always happened. Our, our business is ducks and waterfowl, so it's that way for us. But right. I'm telling you right now, you go talk to people in the oil business or the plastic business or any other business, everybody's that way. You can't even get a freaking styrofoam bowl right now. I'm ordering stuff for Cisco for the lodge. They're out of styrofoam. I tell you another thing they're out of. So there's a paint shortage. If you're going to paint your house, like get your paint now because there's a paint shortage. In Texas, at least, because we had a freeze in February, knocked yep, out all the paint. I remember that. Knocked out all the paint. Uh, the coronavirus has got these these resin shops shut down, so they're not making any more paint. But another thing that these places are not making that they make out of that resin are um, glass around candles, so you can't get candles anywhere. Which what the hell? <laughs> most people are doing scentsies and all that stuff anyway. But yeah. I went to the supply house or the supply house here, and they're like, "Yeah, we can't get any candles because that resin that they make paint out of, they also make the glass around the candles." But it's just—it's everything. It's everywhere, yeah. and I don't know yeah. when it's going to break. We're coming. Well, I think we're still in the middle of a pandemic. It's just—I'm ready for some normalcy. <laughs> About twenty twenty-five. I just like to shoot a few blue. I don't need normal. I just like to shoot a few blue wing teal. Yeah, I may, I may be deprived of that. You, you can come to Texas. We have a lot of those. Yeah, and I'm hearing the same thing out of Louisiana. They got lots of water down there. The whole Texas coast. Yep. Now we got this big freaking hurricane they're calling for now that's in the early, early stages. They're talking yep. about a big hurricane hitting next Wednesday. Well, yep. if it hits from Corpus Christi south, we're going to get anywhere from 5 to 15 inches of rain. If it hits from Houston that way, then Houston, San Antonio is going to get 20 inches of rain and flood again. Louisiana does not need no more rain. Texas nope, coast does not you know, and all that fresh water is, is – is, uh, that salt water comes in with the deal. That kills the marshes there, don't it? Yeah, I mean, it's it, – some of that stuff, I, I don't think Louisiana marshes need it. They've had about all the burn off they've needed. You know, it's those systems been dealing with that stuff as long as it gets reset with fresh water. But, you know, there's some stuff that's too fresh and creates its own suite of problems down there. But – you know, we can all rest assured nobody needs another hurricane in southwest Louisiana. No. For about 
eight trillion reasons. Yeah. yeah. No, they we had uh, what he, he rebuilt his house three times. Yeah, we've got a guy that's going to be here again in three weeks, and he's built his house every year for the last three years completely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. blew it all the way down to nothing. Yeah. Three times. That's when the hell do you give up? I mean, as a grown as a man, like that's hard. Me. That's hard. Like you know, maybe I shouldn't live here. <laughs> I mean, that's a tough deal. And I you tell know, you what, they stay because of the etouffee. That's, that's right. my excuse. Oh, the greatest food in the world's in southern Louisiana. There yeah. is no doubt in the world. Oh. <laughs> so our primary bird that we get down here is speckle bellies. What yep. has led to the just? It's gone. The the production. We see more and more of them every year. I think you know. I think the world, you know, the world selects for some critters and against others, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, the world's been a pretty good place for an Arctic nesting goose the last number of years, right? There's there's a lot of groceries up and down the flyway for them, lots of waste grain. You know, our part of the world, um, you know, it wasn't that long ago where speckle belly was a pretty rare occurrence here. I remember the first one I killed very vividly and I've gotten to the point now, one of my favorite places to hunt, I actually went out and bought six floaters because, you know, there's a pretty darn good chance I could call in a speckle belly over my duck spread in the morning. Mm -hmm. And, and I think speckle bellies, you know, I, I don't know enough about Arctic nesting geese. Dr. Chris Nikolai on our staff would be a great guy to ask that question. He, these are sort of, resident arctic goose specialist but you know i think that i think what really limits those populations is late ice out dates in extreme cold weather events it may be with climate change that it's just a little bit warmer mm -hmm. you know on the margins and maybe that releases just enough pressure that and the fact that they got lots of places to go up and down the flyways and find groceries that's a pretty good, you know, what used to limit the snow goose population is, you know, the damn things had starved to death before they got anywhere because they just, they, you know, there wasn't much food for them. You know, they leave the, they leave the Arctic, they get to the prairies and yeah, they could grub around on something or other, but modern agriculture released the big mortality factor on snow geese. And I wonder if it's not the same with the speckleboat. Yeah, and it it seems like they're everywhere now. There's places I know um, Illinois starting to see them. Indiana yep. starting to see them. So it seems Minnesota's like starting to see them. Minnesota's starting to see them. So it seems like not only are they doing well, but they're also expanding. And I tell you what, those things seem like feral pigs. We got feral pigs down here in Texas, and they that when they establish a home, they overrun it. That's what it seems like a speckle belly is to me. Well, but remember. I mean, if you talk to the guys down on the rice prairie yeah. that used to make a living off of speckle bellies and snow geese, they don't have them. Right. The Louisiana coast doesn't have them like they used to, right? Because their agriculture has changed, because the land use has changed. And I think you guys are probably benefiting from some of those sort of core historic speckle belly areas just not being good speckle belly habitat anymore. Right. And I've wondered, you know? too, go ahead, finish your thought. I'm sorry. But, you know, you start looking at, you know, you start looking at what's happened in Louisiana. We've been part of a big study that uh, Link is doing with Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. And it's interesting because the speckle get there on the same sort of timeline that they always had. You get there mid-October, which is 
almost, you know, write the book on it. It's yeah. so damn predictable. But once the hunting season starts, we've seen those birds go as far back north as Indiana. Wow. So, so Indiana, it, that's that's where Indiana's starting to benefit. They're starting these Louisiana birds. Who knows? Now that's that's a couple birds with radios on sure. them, right? You got to be a bit careful. But it got my attention when a bird left South Louisiana and flew back to Indiana. Right. And it's all it's all resource driven. This this decision to to leave Southern Louisiana, not enough resources. I think it's probably, I I mean, you know, again, you could probably talk to ten thousand people smarter on that subject than I am. But some notion of habitat quality and hunting pressure, right? I mean, this is a thing that we see all the time. Is you know, if your habitat's great, takes more hunting pressure. If your habitat's crummy, probably a little less hunting pressure. And with loss of rice, loss of some of that coastal marsh in, in Louisiana, um, you know, they've lost a heck of a lot of habitat down there. The sugar cane has put the Cajuns out of the duck business and the goose business. They, I mean, that's the biggest issue down there is they got so much more sugar cane than they had 20 years ago. At the expense of rice. Yeah, right. and that's their food, and that's why Stuttgart and them are holding more speckle bellies than they did 20 years ago. Yeah, you know, that's I mean, where 20 the years at. ago, they were... 20 years ago, being in Stuttgart, you know, a speckle belly wasn't a, it was something to get excited about. You know, now they're, now they're in the road ditches. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, our, um, we, our speckle bellies get here and, and, and now October 15th, October 15th, we'll, we'll have, we'll have 15,000 specs here October 15th. I've yep. seen them as early as September 28th. We've had pretty good numbers, and I've seen them as late as October 18th or 19th. But by October 15th, I, I could do hunt. We could run spec hunts on October 15th. And, and I can tell you guys from from my experience living here for the past 20-some years, I see it too because a lot of those birds, probably not the birds that are going to you, but the birds that are going down to southwest Louisiana fly right over my house. And it's as predictable is you know somewhere about the 10th 13th 14th somewhere right in there i'll if i went out at night on a nice clear night it'd be speckle valley highway right over my house yeah and i tell you what's crazy about that is is it's it, we're getting more of them is what's funny but this year you could really tell the early specs that they weren't shooting them in canada like they have been because the birds didn't have the feathers missing off their right. wings and stuff you could tell the hunting pressure in Canada was not nowhere to be seen last year. And our great state of Texas, our, the idiots running our seasons, moved our seasons back two weeks this year. We used to open up the first weekend of, of November, the last weekend of October. Like this year it would open up on Halloween because of 30th. And they moved okay. it back two weeks to give us two weeks to hunt in, in the February. Pan, in February when we have yeah, no birds left, which, yeah. which is – that's a whole other story of my thoughts with some biologists. But – we have a ton of birds here, but those specks this year you could tell hadn't been hunted at all in Canada. So that that's the only bird that I noticed this year was completely different was the early specks had were not easy. been were, were easy. They weren't getting hammered in Canada like they were. But hunting in February in Texas, especially if we get a warm January, there's no birds here. But They're already into Kansas. Yeah. Yes. And, and yeah. we've tried we've tried to uh we tried to talk to different people. The people that make our dates, they live on the coast of Texas. Right. We're 10 hours away. Breed. Yeah, it's a totally different breed of cat. 
Yep. And they just, well, you know, a lot of those guys up in the panhandle, they just love the February season. The opportunity is what the, they say. The you have the opportunity. opportunity. Well, yeah, you have an opportunity to go out and, you know, look at a whooping crane also, but you don't do it, you know, up here because they're not here. Right. We have, we have, it's, it's just, uh, it's, it, it's frustrating. It's very that's, frustrating. That's a point of contention for us. Um, so we've mentioned Louisiana. Do you think that there's any effect? You talk to somebody from Louisiana and it's those damn hot ponds up in Missouri, Illinois, and all that. It, does that play any, any factor into ducks not going to Louisiana like they used to? I don't think so. Do we really want to go here, guys? Yes. If you, if I want you're your opinion. We want your opinion. We we've got ours. We would like okay. yours. You're an ex, you're an expert. You went to St. John, by gosh. <laughs> give us your you expert took, opinion. You took a handshaking class at St. John. <laughs> so give me your opinion. If you looked at the harvest in 2010, 2011, 2012, and 2013, Louisiana shot more than 35 percent of the Mississippi Flyway harvest. Okay. That's pretty recent. Mm-hmm. Um, I get that some people don't like hunting over flooded standing agricultural crops. But they're I shooting them it. over rice, though. If you, But the notion that anything has changed since 2010 in that regard is absurd. And the notion that anything changed in 1998, they've been flooding standing agricultural crops in Illinois and in Missouri, north of St. Louis for a hundred years. Really? Yeah. Nothing changed in 1998, guys. And so I'm willing to have the conversation, but if you're a Louisiana duck hunter and you shoot gadwalls and green wings and widgeon, if you looked at the midwinter survey in the last few years in January in Missouri, Tell me how many non-mallards you see. It's not very many. Right. And, and if you look at the kill, Missouri ain't killing any more than they ever did. Right. Illinois ain't killing more. Illinois is actually killing quite a bit fewer than they ever did. And, and so I get guys being frustrated. I think one of the things that – and maybe this is just the world we live in and social media. You know, I hear guys talking about all the ducks are going to Kansas and Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Well, that assumes that there's never been any ducks in Kansas and Oklahoma, but there, I know lots of guys have been killing ducks in Kansas and Oklahoma way before YouTube videos started. Right. Right. And I get watching Tony Vandemore spank them in a highlight reel pisses people off, especially when you're sitting there looking at empty skies. But Tony Vandemore is in the business to sell duck hunts, I think. Mm-hmm. And my guess is he doesn't do a lot of posting on YouTube of the gar hole hunts he has. <laughs> very, so, very good point. And so, I mean, I, I, think, I think there's things we need to do to help hunting in the South. I think we need to be, you know, and even in Arkansas, Arkansas looks very different, guys, than what it did when I first went down there in the late 1990s. And I think that's having real consequence for Joe Duck Hunter, mm-hmm. not the guy that owns the big club, but the guy that's relying on public hunting areas. Our public hunting areas are in freaking shambles. 
Our refuges are in frickin' shambles. We did some work with DU last year thinking, you know, we heard this infrastructure push in 2020. So we went and did a deep data call. DU did it, we did it, and then we merged our reports. There's $250 million worth of maintenance and infrastructure needs on national wildlife refuges, just priority waterfall refuges. Mm -hmm. When you start looking at state WMAs, it was over $600 million. Yeah. Arkansas alone has a $60 million tab that they need to do just on their green tree reservoirs. Mm. And so you go to a place like Louisiana, there's a great place in Louisiana called White Lake. White Lakes had all sorts of problems with breached levees, failed water control structures, because that stuff wears out, right? Right. White Lake is the hub of the wheel in southwestern Louisiana. White Lake ain't holding the ducks that it used to. Is that because of Missouri? Right. No, it's because of failing infrastructure at White Lake. It's because the comment that was made earlier that um, sugarcane has overtaken rice. That's a real deal. And, and so we got to find ways to improve habitat in the south. And that's not to do anything for ducks, guys. The ducks are going to be just fine, just like the speckle bellies have done just fine. But it's about hunting opportunity. And when our refuges are in bad shape and our WMAs are in bad shape and our land agricultural landscape is in bad shape, that starts to have real felt consequences of duck hunters, just like a drought does for John Debney's duck season this year. Right. So what has led to this failed, uh, failing infrastructure? Is it, was it mismanagement at the local level or was the funds no, not there? No, it's, 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 I mean, why do we have crappy highways and, you know, all the rest of that stuff is the stuff's expensive. Mm -hmm. And and when you start looking at things like the Fish and Wildlife Service, I mean, they've got a third of the less refuge staff is what they had in 2010. That's less people to put boards in water control structures and to run pumps to, you know, fill up this and fill up that. And, and infrastructure just wears out. That's why Republicans and Democrats got their heads together and passed this big infrastructure bill, because everybody knows we've been punting that expense to the curb for a long time. So, no, it's just it's it's declining. If you're a state agency, it's declining revenues. If you're the feds, if you're the Fish and Wildlife Service, you're serving too many masters. It's. It's those sorts of things. It's not negligence. It's it's not people being, you know, mismanagement. It's just a consequence of it is what it is. Use and abuse. Just getting old. Things need to be fixed. Yeah, that's right. The, I mean, well, but one of the things I find funny, or not funny, I, I guess it is, it's just kind of interesting that the people in Louisiana that complain about the stuff up north, the flooded corn and everything, are the same people that flooded rice to smack to ducks. keep birds to keep ducks on it. So it's they're doing the same thing in Louisiana that they did in in in, Cal, in uh, Missouri and Oklahoma everywhere. That's flooding corn is the same thing. What we need is old man winter. If we got a hard, if we would have had that front that we had in February would have hit November, southern Louisiana would have been covered up in ducks. And we need and we need to make some baby ducks. 
right. like we did in 2010, 2011, 2012, and 13. I mean, one state in the Mississippi Flyway killed 35% of the ducks. That's crazy. Well, they weren't complaining then. If we want them to start breeding, we need to start giving them government checks and tell them to stay home all the time, and them damn ducks will get after it. <laughs> um, so real quick before we get off of uh, Louisiana, will this infrastructure bill that just got passed, will that help uh, alleviate some of these issues at these WMAs and, and the like? So we're still trying to find a way to fix the WMAs. We work to get – you guys might have heard, but it was about a year ago when the president signed the Great American Outdoors Act. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so that was a big deal, and, and, and it did lots of things. It did great stuff for the Land and Water Conservation Fund, which we can talk about sometime in the future. That has some potential big implications for making baby ducks. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that we worked pretty hard to get into that final package was there was a legislation called the Restore Our Parks Act. And the Restore Our Parks Act was going to deal with this deferred maintenance and infrastructure in the Park Service, which, you know, is one of the great American treasures, right? right. And, but the bathrooms don't work at Yellowstone and the roads are crappy at Yosemite, right? So we've got that problem there too, right? Well, we worked hard to get the Fish and Wildlife Service into that Restore Our Parks Act, which is part of the Great American Outdoors Act. So that will provide $100 million a year for five years to give the Fish and Wildlife Service money to invest in that deferred maintenance and infrastructure. Right. So that's been taken care of. And we're hoping to make that permanent, not just five-year authorities. We're still working on the mechanism for the state WMAs. We don't have the legislation to move money from the feds to the states to do that. Right. Um, and what we're trying to do right now is make sure that the Fish and Wildlife doing as much as we can to push the service to spend that that restore our parks great american outdoors act money on refuges that are meaningful for ducks and duck hunters see this is why organizations like delta are so important is because you're the voice you're the champion that can get to these to the ears of the federal government and be like listen this is what we need and had we not done that data call and presented that there's 250 million acres of just waterfall work that needs to be done on refuges. Had we not done that last March and April when we were, I was sitting in my basement trying to figure out what the hell COVID was going to do. <laughs> I don't know if we would have got that as part of the legislation that the president, president Trump signed last August. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, you really, you really are. Uh, we we're, we're glad we have people like you on our side. So my final question is, with everything that we're seeing going on, drought, poor breeding, do you foresee, in your, in your opinion, your best guess, do you foresee that there could be a uh, bag limit reduction coming in the near future if things continue? I would say if we're dry again next year, yeah, pretty likely right, would be my guess. I mean, it just... I mean, if you look back over time, long droughts are not good. <laughs> and long droughts eventually get you to the need for reduced bag limits. I don't know how close to that we are because you guys know we haven't counted ducks for two years, right? Right. So, um, but one thing I'll, listen, I, we've spent a lot of time talking doom and gloom here. Yep. There are going to be people that have damn good duck season this year. Absolutely. And... Whether it's we finally get a winner um, or whether 
they just show up someplace. There's still lots of ducks out there, guys. It's not as many as we've been used to the last number of years. It's still a lot more ducks than we had in the late 80s and early 90s. I guarantee you that. And so I don't want guys to sort of say, the hell with it. I'm going to go sit in a tree or do something really stupid and take up golf or something. <laughs> uh, we're going to have, you know, there's still plenty of ducks out there to make people have a really good duck season. And is it going to be a little harder maybe? Yeah, probably. Uh, but there's still lots of opportunities and guys should still go get after them. Well, and I mean, if you look at it, the tough years are where you learn. It's where you hone your craft. Right. You know, anybody can go on a, a small pond and on a good year and just rake them over the coals. Or if you've got a hot feed, go out there and, you know, you're going to do well. But it's right. the tough years where you can hone your craft. You can learn new things. You can you got the freedom to try different things because I mean if if, if you're facing a, a what's probably what could be a tough hunt anyway, you try different things and see what works. Right. So these are the years where duck hunters can become a better hunter. Anybody right. can be a killer on a good year. That's easy. Right. So go out there and, and learn and enjoy enjoy doing it the right way. Enjoy having a mallard that you would on a good year shoot at thirty yards. Work them to 10 or 15. Right. Be a better hunter. So don't sit on the couch just because the odds aren't in your favor. Do it the right way. And they may be in your favor. I mean, who knows? Maybe we get, you know, maybe we get winter early Mm -hmm. from here to Kansas City and it stays in. And if that happens, guys guys in the south end of the flyways will have one hell of a duck season. I guarantee it. I hope I hope you're right. I just hope everybody gets out, makes lots of memories, and has a good time. Yeah, that's what it's that's all right. about. Listen, we've come through COVID and everything else. Like life's too short to sit at home. Get out there and make some memories while you still yep. can. John, we appreciate you being on here with us. We'd like to have you on again with us one day in the future. Absolutely, guys. Delighted to do it. You're my favorite guy from St. John's University. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm delighted to know that. We appreciate your time, sir, and uh, we hope that you have a wonderful waterfowl season. It's right here around the corner. And uh, if you ever get down to Texas, give us a holler, and we can uh, maybe if we got some blue wings around, we can go give a little hell on them. God bless right. you, and have a great day, sir. See you, Be well. Have a great season, guys. Yes, sir. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Very interesting, man. Yes, sir. And yeah. the first person from St. John's University we've had. That you know of. That's true. Went to a handshaking school. That's pretty cool. And handshaking I tell you what, class. A class. Well, no, that was part of the class was take it and learn to handshakes. But you know what? If they would teach kids that in junior high, it would be a good life lesson for them. I think they need to because I'm telling you what, when I went to graduations this year, and I went to several, and I saw the same thing at every place, no kid walks with their shoulders back and their head held high. And this is a graduation. This is, this is a milestone in your life. This is a, the crowning achievement that you have had in your 18 years on this earth is graduating high school. Everybody walked with, they were looking at the floor the whole time. Shoulders are slunched over, and I guarantee you, I didn't shake a whole lot of hands because of COVID. I don't, you know, nasty little bastards picking their nose. I saw them, Jeff. But I guarantee you, if you'd have shaken somebody's hand, there's nothing. It'd have been the. I love when I'm sitting here and a guy comes up, I shake their hands and introduce themselves, and their kids reach up and shake hands to me. Yeah. I love it. And I'm going to tell you what, the kids from the South are the best at that. Sure. And especially the kids from Louisiana. 
Yes. Mr. Very. Jeff, nice to meet you, blah, blah, very All, Always Mr. Jeff. You, you, you're giving your kids a good start in life when you do that. Because Teach. when a kid comes into court and shakes my hand and is polite <laughs> to me, I'm nicer to him than if he's an asshole to me. Um, but seriously, like like John was saying, you know, we talked a lot of doom and gloom, but there's still possibilities for good duck hunting. Yes. And the tough days are where you become a seasoned waterfowl hunter. Yeah. You don't learn anything. Appreciate the hunt. Whenever your... you go out there and it's over in 30 right. minutes. Appreciate Anybody the... can do that. Appreciate the hunt and enjoy your life and, and make memories. And if you want to shoot some ducks in Oklahoma, holler at me. Thank y'all for listening to you. God bless y'all. Have a great weekend. And as always, go check out all of our wonderful sponsors. Go listen to Logan and Rebel at the Looking Glass Duck Club podcast. Check out Gundog Outdoors, Goose Creek Retrievers, Bangtail Whiskey, Eyesight Drone Service, Stanfield Hunting Outfitters, Lucky Duck, Dirty Duck Coffee. That's how I start my morning. Boss Shot Shells, make the most of your shot. Dive Bomb Industries, uh, Shin Gear Waders, and Pacific Custom Calls.